For many things in life, it takes time and effort before you can see meaningful improvement. But luckily for us, eating better is easy with Factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals. Every meal from Factor is fresh, never frozen, and is chef-crafted and ready to go in just two minutes. There are over 35 different options to choose from every week, and it doesn't just stop at lunch or dinner, they also have a wide variety of easy options for the entire day, like breakfast, midday bites, and more. Truly every meal I've had from Factor has been delicious, but most importantly for me, it's beyond easy with no cooking or prep and especially no cleanup. Plus Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved, so I'm saving money and eating healthier even on the days when I don't feel like cooking. If you'd like to get started today and get after your goals, head to factormeals.com lightspeed50 and use code lightspeed50 to get 50% off. That's code LIGHTSPEED50 at factormeals.com slash LIGHTSPEED50 to get 50% off. Who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Lightspeed. Hello there, and welcome to the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Kincaid. We're halfway through the month of October, probably my favorite month of the year, seasonally speaking. When the air catches a chill, and the leaves change color and fall. If that's not the way it is where you live, my condolences. October also has the coolest holiday of the year. Halloween. And in the spirit of the spooky season, if you haven't checked out Nightmare Magazine, I hope you will, at nightmare-magazine.com, where I use a slightly different voice, and which is also edited by John Joseph Adams, my boss, who might totally fire me if I keep rambling on. I think he's coming now. Look busy, everyone. <clears throat> and let's get to this week's story. Our next science fiction offering for the October issue is The Art of War by Nancy Cress. The story is read for you by Rajan Khanna. Nancy Cress is the author of 26 books, three fantasy novels, 12 sci-fi novels, three thrillers, four collections of short stories, one young adult novel, and three books on writing fiction. She is perhaps best known for the Sleepless trilogy, that began with Beggars in Spain, which was based on the Nebula and Hugo-winning Navala of the same name. She won her second Hugo in 2009 in Montreal for the Navala, the Erdman Nexus. Cress has also won three additional Nebulas as Sturgeon in the 2003 John W. Campbell Award for her novel Probability Space. Her most recent books are a collection of other stories, Nano Comes to Clifford Falls and Other Stories, a bio-thriller, Dogs, and a sci-fi novel, Steal Across the Sky. 
Cress's fiction, much of which concerns genetic engineering, has been translated into 20 languages. She often teaches writing at various venues around the country in blogs at nancycress.blogspot.com. Well, that about does it for this week's intro. So without further ado, let's make the jump to light speed. The Art of War by Nancy Cress Return fire, the colonel ordered, bleeding on the deck of her ship, ferocity raging in her nonetheless controlled voice. The young and untried officer of the deck cried, It won't do any good. There's too many... I said fire, goddammit! Fire at will! The O.D. ordered the gun bay, and then closed his eyes against the coming barrage, as well as against the sight of the exec's mangled corpse. Only minutes left to them, only seconds... A brilliant light blossomed on every screen, a blinding light filling the room. Crewmen, those still standing on the battered and limping ship, threw up their arms to shield their eyes. And when the light finally faded, the enemy base was gone, annihilated as if it had never existed. The base? It... how did you do that, ma'am? the O.D. asked, dazed. Search for survivors, the colonel ordered, just before she passed out from wounds that would have killed a lesser soldier and all soldiers were lesser than she. No, of course it didn't happen that way. That's from the hollow version, available by Ansible throughout the human galaxy 48 hours after the victory of 149 Delta. Author unknown, but the veteran actress Shimera Coltrane played the colonel, now of course a general. Shimera's brilliant green eyes were very effective, although not accurate. General Anson had deflected a large meteor to crash into the enemy base, destroying a major Tele weapon store and much of the Tele civilization on the entire planet. It was an important human victory in the war, and at that point, we needed it. What happened next was never made into a hollow. In fact, it was a minor incident in a minor corner of the human Tele war. But no corner of a war is minor to the soldiers fighting there and even a small incident can have enormous repercussions. I know. I will be paying for what happened on 149 Delta, for whatever is left of my life. This is not philosophical maundering, nor constitutional gloom. It is mathematical fact. Delo and I were just settling into our quarters on the Scheherazade when the general arrived, unannounced and in person. Crates of personal gear sat on the floor of our tiny sitting room, where Dalo would spend most of her time while I was downside. Neither of us wanted to be here. I'd put in for a posting to Terra, which neither of us had ever visited, and we were excited about the chance to see, at long last, the Sistine Chapel. So much Terran art had been lost in the original, but the Sistine is still there, and we both longed to gaze up at that sublime ceiling. And then I had been posted to 149 Delta. Dalo was kneeling over a box of Mutamati, as the cabin door opened and an aide announced, General Anson to see Captain Porter, ten hut! I sprang into a salute, wondering how far I could go before she recognized it as parody. She came in, resplendent in full-dress uniform glistening with medals, flanked by two more aides, which badly crowded the cabin. Delo, calm as always, stood and dusted mutamati powder off her palms. The general stared at me bleakly. Her eyes were shit-brown. At ease, soldier. Thank you, ma'am. Welcome, ma'am. Thank you. And this is... My wife, Delo Manny Marito. Your wife. Yes, ma'am. They didn't tell me you were married. 
Yes, ma'am. To a civilian, obviously. Not only that, a civilian who looked... I don't know why I did it. Well, yes, I do. I said, my wife is half Telly. And for a long moment, she actually looked uncertain. Yes, Dalo has the same squat body and light coat of hair as the Telly. She's Jean-Mod for her native planet, a cold and high-gravity world, which is also what Tell is. But surely a general should know that interspecies breeding is impossible, especially that interspecies breeding. Dalo is as human as I. The general's eyes grew cold, colder. I don't appreciate that sort of humor, Captain. No, ma'am. I'm here to give you your orders. Tomorrow, at 0500 hours, your shuttle leaves for downside. You will be based in a central telly structure that contains a large stockpile of stolen human artifacts. I have assigned you three soldiers to crate and transport upside anything that you think has value. You will determine which objects meet that description and, if possible, where they were stolen from. You will attach to each object a full statement with your reasons, including any applicable identification programs. You have your software with you? Of course, ma'am. A C-112 near AI will be placed at your disposal. That's all. Dan Hut! bawled one of the aides. But by the time I had gotten my arm into a salute, she was gone. John, Dalo said gently, you didn't have to do that. Yes, I did. Did you see the horror on the aides' faces when I said you were half Telly? She turned away. Suddenly frightened, I caught her arm. Dear heart, you knew I was joking. I didn't offend you. Of course not. She nestled in my arms, affectionate and gentle as always. Still, there is a diamond hard core under all that sweetness. The general had clearly never heard of her before, but Dalo is one of the best Mutomati artists of her generation. Her art has moved me to tears. I'm not offended, John, but I do want you to be more careful. You are baiting General Anson. I won't have to see her while I'm on assignment here. Generals don't bother with lowly captains. Still, I hate the bitch, Dalo. Yes, still be more circumspect. Even be more pleasant. I know what history lies between you two, but nonetheless she is... Don't say it. After all, your mother. The evidence of the meteor impact was visible long before the shuttle landed. The impactor had been 50 meters in diameter, weighing roughly 60,000 tons, composed mostly of iron. If it had been stone, the damage wouldn't have been nearly so extensive. The main base of the Tele military colony had been vaporized instantly. Subsequent shockwaves and air blasts had produced firestorms that raged for days and devastated virtually the entire coast of 149 Delta's one small continent. Now, a month later, we flew above kilometer after kilometer of destruction. General Anson had calculated when her deflected meteor would hit and had timed her approach to take advantage of that knowledge. Some minor miscalculation had led to an initial attack on her ship, but before the attack could gain force, the meteor had struck. Why hadn't the Telly known that it was coming? Their military tech was as good as ours, and they'd colonized 149 Delta for a long time. Surely they did basic space surveys that tracked both the original meteor trajectory and Anson's changes. No one knew why they had not counter-deflected, or at least evacuated. But then, there was so much we didn't know about the Telly. The shuttle left the blackened coast behind and flew toward the mountains, skimming above acres of cultivated land. The crops, I knew, were rotting. 
Telly did not allow themselves to be taken prisoner, not ever, under any circumstances. As human forces had forced their way into successive areas of the continent, the agricultural colony, deprived of its one city, had simply committed suicide. The only Telly left on 168 Beta occupied those areas that United Space Forces had not yet reached. That didn't include the Citadel. Here we are, Captain, the pilot said, as soldiers advanced to meet the shuttle. May I ask a question, sir? Sure, I said. Is it true this is where the Telly put all that art they stole from humans? Supposed to be true. If it wasn't, I had no business here. And you're a... an art historian? I am. The military has some strange nooks and crannies. He ignored this. And is it true that the Taj Mahal is here? I stared at him. The Telly looted the art of Terran colonies whenever they could, and no one knew why. It was logical that rumors would run riot about that. Still, Lieutenant, the Taj Mahal was a building, a huge one, and on Terra. It was destroyed in the 21st century food riots, not by the Telly. They never reached Terra. Oh, he said, clearly disappointed. I heard the Taj was a sort of hollow of all these exotic sex positions. No. Oh well, he sighed deeply. Good luck, Captain. Thank you. The Citadel, our human name for it, of course, turned out to be the entrance into a mountain. Presumably, the Telly had excavated bunkers in the solid rock, but you couldn't tell that from the outside. A veteran NCO met me at the guard station. Captain Porter, I'm Sergeant Liu, head of your assignment detail. Can I take these bags, sir? Hello, Sergeant. He was ruddy, spit-and-polished military, with an uneducated accent. Obviously, my detail was not going to consist of any other scholars. They were there to do grunt work. But Lou looked amiable and willing, and I relaxed slightly. He led me to my quarters, a trapezoid-shaped, low-ceilinged room with elaborately etched stone walls, and no contents except a human bed, chest, table, and chair. Immediately, I examined the walls, the usual dense montage of telly symbols that were curiously evocative, even though we didn't understand their meanings. They looked handmade and recent. What was this room before we arrived? Lou shrugged. Don't know what any of these rooms were to the tellies, sir. We cleaned them all out and vapped everything. Might have been booby-trapped, you know. How do we know the whole citadel isn't booby-trapped? We don't, sir. I liked his unpretentious fatalism. Let's leave this gear here for now. I'd like to see the vaults. And call me John. What's your first name, Sergeant? Ruined, sir. But there was no rebuke in his tone. The four vaults were nothing like I had imagined. Art, even stolen art, maybe especially stolen art, is usually handled with care. After all, trouble and resources have been expended to obtain it, and it is considered valuable. This was clearly not the case with the art stolen by the telly. Each vault was a huge natural cave with rough stone walls, stalactites, water dripping from the ceiling, fungi growing on the walls. And except for a small area in the front where the AI console and a Navy-issue table stood under a protective canopy, the enormous cavern was jammed with huge, toppling, six-and-seven-layer deep piles of... stuff. Dazed, I stared at the closest edge of that enormous junkyard, a torn plastic bag bearing some corporate logo, a broken bathtub painted in swirling greens, a child's bloody shoe, some broken goblets of titanium which was almost impossible to break, a hand-embroidered shirt from 7-8 Alpha where such handwork is a folk art, a cheap set of plastic dishes decorated with blurry prints of dogs, 
a child's finger painting, what looked like a Terran prehistoric fertility figure, and still, in its original frame and leaning crazily against an obsolete music cube, Philip Langstrom's priceless abstract, Ascent of Justice, which had been looted from 4-6 Gamma six years ago in a surprise telly raid. Water spots had rotted one corner of the canvas. Kinda takes your breath away, don't it? Lou said. What a bunch of rubbish. Look at that picture in the front there, sir. Can't even tell what it's supposed to be. You want me to start bapping things? I closed my eyes, feeling the seizure coming, the going under. I breathed deeply, went through the mental cleansing that my serene Delo had taught me. Kai Lanu, Kai Lanu, breathe. Sir? Captain Porter? I'm fine, I said. I had control again. We're not vapping anything, Lou. We're here to study all of it, not just rescue some of it. Do you understand? Whatever you say, sir, he said, clearly understanding nothing. But then, neither did I. All at once, my task seemed impossible, overwhelming. A scent of justice, and a broken bathtub, and a bloody shoe? What in hell had the telly considered art? Kailanu, Kailanu, breathe. The first time I went under, there had been no Delo to help me. I'd been ten years old, and about to be shipped out to young soldiers' camp on Ares, the first moon of 4-3 Beta. Children in their little uniforms had been laughing and shoving as they boarded the shuttle, and all at once I was on the ground, gasping for breath, tears pouring down my face. What's wrong with him, my mother said. Medic! John, John, Daddy said, trying to hold me. Oh, God's John! The medic rushed over, slapped on a patch that didn't work, and then I remembered nothing except the certainty that I was going to die. I knew it right up until the moment I could breathe again. The shuttle had left. The medic was packing up his gear without looking at my parents, and my father's arms held me gently. My mother stared at me with contempt. You little coward, she said. They were the last words she spoke to me for an entire year. Why the Space Navy? Dalo would eventually ask me, in sincere confusion. After all the other seizures, the way she treated you each time, John, you could have taught art at a university, written scholarly books. I had to join the Navy, I said, and knew that I couldn't say more without risking a seizure. Dalo knew it, too. Dalo knew that the doctors had no idea why the conventional medications didn't touch my condition why I was such a medical anomaly. She knew everything and loved me anyway, as no one had since my father's death when I was thirteen. She was my lifeline, my sanity. Just thinking about her aboard the Scheherazade, just knowing I would see her again in a few weeks, let me concentrate on the bewildering task in front of me in the dripping, moldy, telly vault, filled with human treasures and human junk. And with any luck, I would not have to encounter General Anson again, for any reason. A polished marble doll. A broken comlink on which some girl had once painted lopsided red roses. An exquisite Alvestron, Eastern Mediterranean 5th century B.C., looted five years ago from the private collection of Fahud al-Ashan on 7-1 Delta. A forged copy of Luca di Chario's Menamarti, although not a bad forgery, with a fake certificate of authenticity. Three more embroidered baby shoes. A handmade quilt several hollow cubes, a hair comb, a music cube case with hollow porn star Shiva on the cover, Degas' exquisite Dansou Sourcine, Dansou Sourcine, 
which had vanished from a Terran museum a hundred years ago, assumed to be in an off-earth private collection somewhere. I gaped at it, unbelieving, and ran every possible physical and computer test. It was the real thing. Captain, why do we gotta measure the exact place on the floor of every little piece of rubbish, whined Private Blanders. I ignored her. My detail had learned early that they could take liberties with me. I had never been much of a disciplinarian. I said, because we don't know which data is useful and which not until the computer analyzes it. But the location don't matter. I'm gonna just estimate it, all right? You'll measure it to the last fraction of a centimeter, Sergeant Luce said pleasantly, and it'll be accurate or you're in the brig, soldier. You got that? Yes, sir. Thank the gods for Sergeant Lou. The location was important. The AI's algorithms were starting to show a pattern. Partial as yet, but interesting. Lou carried a neoplastic sculpture of a young boy over to my table and set it down. He ran the usual tests, and the measurements appeared in a display screen on the C-112. The sculpture, I could see from one glance was worthless as both art or history, an inept and recent work. I hoped the sculptor hadn't quit his day job. Lou glanced at the patterns on my screen. What's that then, sir? It's a fractal. A what? Part of a pattern formed by behavior curves. What does it mean, he asked, but without any real interest, just being social. Lou was a social creature. I don't know yet what it means, but I do know one other thing. I switched screens, needing to talk aloud about my findings. Dalo wasn't here. Lou would have to do, however inadequately. See these graphs? These artifacts were brought to the vault by different telly, or groups of telly, and at different times. How can you tell that, sir? Lou looked a little more alert. Art didn't interest him, but the telly did. Because the art objects, as opposed to the other stuff, occur in clusters through the cave. See here? And the real art as opposed to the amateur junk, forms clusters of its own. When the telly brought back human art from raids, some of the aliens knew, or had learned, what qualified. Others never did. Lou stared at the display screen, his red nose wrinkling. How did someone named Ruhan Lu end up with such a ruddy complexion? Those lines and squiggles. He pointed at the Ebenfeld equations at the bottom of the screen. Tell you all that, sir? Those squiggles plus the measurements you're making. I know where some pieces were housed in human colonies, so I'm also tracking the paths of raids, plus other variables like the citadel shook as something exploded deep under our feet. Enemy attack! Lou shouted. He pulled me to the floor and threw his body across mine as dirt and stone and mold rained down from the ceiling of the cave. Die. I was going to die. Dalo! I heard myself scream, and then, in the weird way of the human mind, came one clear thought out of the chaos. I won't get to see the Sistine Chapel after all. Then I heard, or thought nothing, as I went under. I woke in my telly quarters in the Citadel, grasping and clawing my way upright. Lou laid a hard hand on my arm. Steady, sir. Dalo, the Scheherazade ships just fine, sir. It was a booby trap buried somewhere in the mountain. The security thinks most of it fizzled. Place is a mess, but not much real damage. Blanders? Kaczynski? Two soldiers are dead, but neither one's our detail. He leaned forward, hand still on my arm. What happened to you, sir? I tried to meet his eyes and failed. The old shame flooded me, the old guilt, the old defiance. All here again. Who saw? Nobody but me. Is it a nerve disease, sir? 
Like ransom fits? No. My condition had no discoverable physical basis, and no name except my mother's, repeated over the years. Coward. Because of its ransom fits, sir, my brother has it, and they gave him meds for it. Fixed him right up. It's not ransom. What are the general orders, Lou? All hands to carry on. More booby traps? I guess they'll look, sir. Bound to be, don't you think? Don't know if they'll find anything. My friend Sergeant Andropov over in security says the mountain is so honeycombed with caves underneath these big ones that they could search for a thousand years and not find everything. Captain Porter, if it happens again, with you, I mean, is there anything special I should do for you? I did meet his eyes then. Did he know how rare his gaze was? No, he did not. Lou's honest, conscientious, not very intelligent face showed nothing but pragmatic acceptance of the situation. No disgust, no contempt, no sentimental pity, and he had no idea how unusual that was. But I knew. No, Sergeant, nothing special. We'll just carry on. Aye, aye, sir. If any request for information came down from General Anson's office, I never received it. No request for a report on damage to the art vaults, or on impact to assignment progress, or on personnel needs. Nothing. The second booby trap destroyed everything in Vault A. It struck while I was upside on the Scheherazade, with Dalo on a weekend pass after a month of fourteen-hour days in the vault. Lou calmly to me in the middle of the night. The screen on the bulkhead opposite our bed chimed and brightened, waking us both. I clutched at Dalo. Captain Porter, sir, we had another explosion down here at 0136 hours. Lou's face was black with soot. Blood smeared one side of his face. It got Vault A and some of the crew quarters. Private Blanders is dead, sir. The AI is destroyed, too. I'm waiting on your orders. I said to the comlink, Send. Voice only. My voice came out too high, and Dalo's arm went around me, but I didn't go under. Lou, is the quake completely over? Far as we know, sir. I'll be downside as soon as I can. Don't try to enter Vault A until I arrive. Yes, sir. I broke the link, turned in Dalo's arms, and went under. When the seizures stopped, I went downside. We had nearly finished cataloging Vault A when it blew. Art of any value had already been created and moved, and of course all my data was backed up on both the base AI and on the Scheherazade. For the first time, I wondered why I had been given a C-112 of my own in the first place. A near AI was expensive, and there was a war on. Vault B was pretty much a duplicate of Vault A, a huge, natural cavern dripping water and sediments on a packed solid jumble of human objects. A carved 14th century oak chest, probably French, that some rich Terran must have had transported to a human colony. Handwoven Debeni from 1-4 Alpha. A cooking pot. A samurai sword with embossed handle. A hollow cube programmed with porn. Mondrian's priceless Broadway boogie-woogie, mostly in unforgivable tatters. A cheap, mass-produced jewelry box. More shoes. A pole of fort sculpture looted from a pleasure craft, the Princess of Mars, two years ago. A brass menorah. The entire contents of the Museum of Colonial Art on 3-3 Delta. Most of it worthless, but a few pieces showing promise. I hoped the young artists hadn't been killed in the telly raid. Three days after Lou, Private Kaczynski, and I began work on Vault B, 
General Anson appeared. She had not attended Private Blander's memorial service. I felt her before I saw her, her gaze boring into the back of my neck, and I closed my eyes. Kailanu, Kailanu, breathe. Tenat! Lou and Kaczynski had already sprung to attention. I turned and saluted. Breathe. Kalanu, Kalanu, please, gods, not in front of her. A word, Captain. Yes, ma'am. She led the way to a corner of the vault, walking by Tomiko Mahuto's morning grace, one of the most beautiful things in the universe, without a glance. Water dripped from the end of a stalactite onto her head. She shifted away from it without changing expression. I want an estimate of how much longer you need to be here, Captain. I've filed daily progress reports, ma'am. We're on the second of four vaults. I read all the reports, Captain. How much longer? Unless something in the other two vaults differs radically from vaults A and B, perhaps another three months? And what will your conclusions be? She had no idea how science worked, or art. I can't say until I have more data, ma'am. Where does your data point so far? Her tone was too sharp. Was I this big an embarrassment to her, that she needed me gone before my job was done? I had told no one about my relationship to her, and I would bet my last chance to see the Sistine Chapel that she hadn't done so, either. I said carefully, There is primary evidence, not yet backed up mathematically, that the telly began over time to distinguish human art objects from mere decorated utilitarian objects. There is also some reason to believe that they looted our art not because they liked it, but because they hoped to learn something significant about us. Learn something significant from broken bathtubs and embroidered baby shoes? I blinked. So she had been reading my reports, and in some detail. Why? Apparently, ma'am. What makes you think they hope to learn about us from this rubbish? I'm using the Ebenfeld equations in conjunction with phase space diagrams for I don't need technical mumbo jumbo. What do you think they tried to learn about humans? Their own art seems to have strong religious significance. I'm no expert on telly work, but my roommate at the university, Forrest Jamili, has gone on to I don't care about your roommate, she said, which was hardly news. I remember the day I left from the university, possibly the most terrified and demoralized first year ever. How I had gone under when she had said to me, Kailanu, Kailanu, breathe, breathe. I managed to avoid going under, but just barely. I quavered. I don't know what the telly learned from our art. She stared at my face with contempt, spun on her boot heel, and left. That night, I began to research the DBs on telly art. It gave me something to do during the long, insomniac hours. Human publications on tele-art, I discovered, had an odd, evasive, overly careful feel to them. Perhaps that was inevitable. Ancient Athenian commentators had to watch what they said publicly about Sparta. In wartime, it took very little to be accused of giving away critical information about the enemy, or of giving them treasonous praise. In no one's papers was this elliptical quality more evident than in Forrest Jamili's, and yet something was clear. Until now, art scholars had been building a vast heap of details about telly art. Forrest was the first to suggest a viable overall framework to organize those details. It was during one of these long and lonely nights, desperately missing Dalo, that I discovered the block on my access codes. I couldn't get into the official records of the meteor deflection that had destroyed the telly weapon space, 
and brought General Anson the famous victory of 149 Delta. Why? Because I wasn't a line officer? Perhaps. Or perhaps the records involved military security in some way. Or perhaps, and this was what I chose to believe, she just wanted the heroic, melodramatic, hollow version of her victory to be the only one available. I didn't know if other officers could access the records, and I couldn't ask. I had no friends among the officers, no friends here at all except Lou. On my second leave upside, Dalo said, You look terrible, dear heart. Are you sleeping? No. Oh, Dalo, I'm so glad to see you. I clutched her tight. We made love. The taut, fearful ache that was my life downside eased. Finally. A little. Afterward, lying in the cramped bunk, she said, You found something unexpected. Some correlation that disturbs you. Yes. No. I don't know yet. Delo, just talk to me. About anything. Tell me what you've been doing up here. Well, I've been preparing materials for a new mutomati, as you know. I'm almost ready to begin work on it. And I've made a friend, Susan Finch. I tried not to scowl. Delo made friends wherever she went, and it was wrong of me to resent this slight diluting of her affections. You would like her, John, Delo said, poking me and smiling. She's not a line officer, for one thing. She's the ship's doctor. In my opinion, doctors were even worse than line officers. I had seen so many doctors during my horrible adolescence. But I said, I'm glad you have someone to be with when I'm downside. She left. Liar. She knew my possessiveness and my flailing attempts to overcome it. She knew everything about me, accepted everything about me. In Delo, now my only family, I was the luckiest man alive. I put my arms around her and held on tight. The tele-attack came two months later, when I was halfway through Vault D. Six tele-warships emerged sluggishly from subspace, moving at half their possible speed. Our probes easily picked them up, and our fighters took them out after a battle that barely deserved the name. Human casualties numbered only seven. Shooting fish in a barrel, Private Kaczynski said, as he crated a Roman Empire bottle. Third century CE. Pale green glass with seven engraved lines. It had been looted from 189 Alpha four years ago. Bastards never could fight. Not true, said the honest Sergeant Lou. Telly can fight fine. They just didn't. That don't make sense, Sergeant. And it didn't. Unless... All that night, I worked in Vault D at the computer terminal that had replaced my freestanding C-112. The terminal linked to both the downside system and the DBs on the Scheherazade. Water dripped from the ceiling, echoing in the cavernous space. Once, something like a bat flew from some far recess. I kept slapping on stim patches to stay alert, and feverishly calling up different programs, and doing my best to erect cyber shields around what I was doing. Lou found me there in the morning, my hands shaking, staring at the display screens. Sir? Captain Porter? Yes? Sir? Are you all right? Art history is not, as people like General Anson believe, a lot of dusty information about a frill occupation interesting to only a few effetes. The Ebenfeld equations transformed art history, linking the field to both behavior and to the mathematics underlying chaos theory. Not so new an idea, really. The ancient Greeks used math to work out the perfect proportions for buildings, for women, for cities, all profound shapers of human behavior. 
The creation of art does not happen in a vacuum. It is linked to culture in complicated, nonlinear ways. Chaos theory is still the best way to model nonlinear behavior dependent on small changes in initial conditions. I looked at three sets of mapped data. One, my multidimensional analysis of vaults A through D, was comprehensive and detailed. My second set of data was clear but had a significant blank space. The third set was only suggested by shadowy lines, but the overall shape was clear. Sir? Sergeant, can you set up two totally encrypted comlink calls, one to the Scheherazade and one by Ansible to St. Louis University on 18 Alpha? Yes, I know that officially you can't do that, but you know everybody everywhere. Can you do it? It's vitally important, Ruin. I can't tell you how important. Lou gazed at me from his ruddy, honest face. He did indeed know everyone. A Navy lifer, and with all the amiability and human contacts that I lacked. And he trusted me. I could feel that unaccustomed warmth, like a small and steady fire. I think I can do that, sir. He did. I spoke first to Dalo, then to Forrest Jamili. He sent a packet of encrypted information. I went back to my data, working feverishly. Then I made a second encrypted call to Dalo. She said simply, Yes. Susan says yes, of course she can. They all can. Dalo, find out when the next ship docks with the Scheherazade. If it's today, book passage on it, no matter where it's going. If there's no ship today, then buy a seat on a supply shuttle and... Those cost a fortune. I don't care. Just, John, the supply shuttles are all private contractors, and they charge civilians a... It would wipe out everything we've saved. And why? What's wrong? I can't explain now. I heard boots marching along the corridor to the vault. Just do it. Trust me, Dalo. I'll find you when I can. Captain, an MP said severely, come with me. His weapon was drawn, and behind him stood a detail of grim-faced soldiers. Lou stepped forward, but I shot him a glance that said, Say nothing. This is mine alone. Good soldier that he was, he understood, and he obeyed. It was, after all, the first time I had ever given him a direct, if wordless, order. The first time I had assumed the role of commander. My mother should have been proud. Her office resembled my quarters, rather than the vaults. A trapezoidal, low-ceilinged room with alien art etched on all the stone walls. The room held the minimum of furniture. General Anson stood alone behind her desk, a plain military-issue camp item, appropriate to a leader who was one with the ranks, don't you know? She did not invite me to sit down. The MPs left, reluctantly it seemed to me, but then there was no doubt in anyone's mind that she could break me bare-knuckled, if necessary. She said, You made two encrypted comlink calls and one encrypted Ansible message from this facility, all without proper authorization. Why? I had to strike before she got to me, before I went under. I blurted, I know why you blocked my access to the meteor deflection data. She said nothing, just went on gazing at me from those eyes that could chill glaciers. There was no deflection of that meteor. The meteor wasn't on our tracking system because humans haven't spent much time in this sector until now. You caught a lucky break, and whatever deflection records exist now, you added after the fact. Your so-called victory was a sham. I watched her face carefully, hoping for... What? Confirmation? Outraged denial that I could somehow believe? I saw neither. And of course I was flying blind. 
Captain Susan Finch had told Dalo only that yes, of course officers had access to the deflection records. I was the only one who had been barred from them, and the general must have had a reason for that. She always had a reason for everything. Still, she said nothing. Hoping that I would utter even more libelous statements against a commanding officer? Would commit even more treason? I could feel my breathing accelerate, my heart start to pound. I said, the Tele must have known the meteor's trajectory. They've colonized 149 Delta a long time. They let it hit their base. And I know why. The answer is in the art. Still no change of expression. She was stone, but she was listening. The answer is in the art, ours and theirs. I ansibled Forrest Jamili last night. No, look first at these diagrams. No, first... I was making a mess of it as the seizure moved closer. Not now. Not now. Not in front of her. Somehow, I held myself together, although I had to wrench my gaze away from her to do it. I pulled the hollow cube from my pocket, activated it, and projected it on the stone wall. The tele etching shimmered, ghostly, behind the laser colors of my data. This is a phase-space diagram of Ebenfeld equations using input about the frequency of tele-art creation. We have tests now, you know, that can date any art within weeks of its creation by pinpointing when the raw materials were altered. A phase-state diagram is how we model bifurcated behaviors grouped around two attractors. What that means is that the tele created their art in bursts, with long fallow periods between bursts when... No, wait, General, this is relevant to the war. My voice had risen to a shriek. I couldn't help it. Contempt rose off her like heat, but she stopped her move toward the door. This second phase space diagram is tele-attack behavior. Look, it inverts the first diagrams. They attack viciously for a while, and during that time, virtually no tele creates art at all. Then when some tipping point is reached, they stop attacking, or else attack only ineffectively, like the last raid here. They're waiting. And if the tipping point, this mathematical value, isn't reached fast enough, they sabotage their own bases, like letting the meteor hit 149 Delta. They did it in the battle outside 16 Beta and in the Q Sector massacre. You were there. When the mathematical value is reached, when enough of them have died, they create art like crazy, but don't wage war. Not until the art reaches some other hypothetical mathematical value that I think is the second attractor. Then they stop creating art and go back to war. You're saying that periodically their soldiers just curl up and let us kill them? She spat at me. The Tele are damned fierce fighters, Captain. I know that even if the likes of you never will. They don't just whimper and lie down on the floor. Kailanu, Kailanu. It's a... A religious phenomenon, Forrest Jamili thinks. I mean, he thinks their art is a form of religious atonement. All of their art. That's its societal function, although the whole thing may be biologically programmed as well, like the deaths of lemmings to control population. The telly can take only so much dying, or maybe even only so much killing, and then they have to stop and, and restore what they see as some sort of spiritual balance. And they loot our art because they think we must do the same thing. Don't you see? They were collecting our art to try to analyze when we will stop attacking and go fallow. They assume we must be the same as them, just no warriors stop fighting for a bunch of weakling artists. Just as you assume, they must be the same as us. 
we stared at each other. I said, as you have always assumed that everyone should be the same as you, mother. You're doing this to try to discredit me, aren't you? She said evenly. Anyone can connect any dots in any statistics to prove whatever they wish. Everybody knows that. You want to discredit my victory because such a victory will never come to you. Not to the sniveling, backstabbing coward who's been a disappointment his entire life. Even your wife is worth ten of you. At least she doesn't crumple under pressure. She moved closer. Closer to me than I could ever remember her being. And every one of her words hammered on the inside of my head, my eyes, my chest. You got yourself assigned here purposely to embarrass me. And now you want to go farther and ruin me. It's not going to happen, soldier. Do you hear me? I'm not going to be made a laughingstock by you again, the way I was in every officer's club during your whole miserable adolescence, and... I didn't hear the rest. I went under, seizing and screaming. It is two days later. I lie in the medical bay of the Shahrazad, still in orbit around 149 Delta. My room is locked, but I am not in restraints. Crazy. Under arrest but not violent. Or perhaps the general is simply hoping I'll kill myself and save everyone more embarrassment. Downside, in Vault D, Lou is finishing crating the rest of the looted human art, all of which is supposed to be returned to its rightful owners, the Space Navy serving its galactic citizens. Maybe the art will actually be shipped out in time. My hollow cube was taken from me. I imagine that all my data has been wiped from the bases and ship's DBs as well, or maybe just classified as severely restricted. In that case, no one cleared to look at it, which would include only top-line officers, is going to open files titled Tele-Art Creation. Generals have better things to do. But Forrest Jamili has copies of my data and my speculations. Phase state diagrams bring order out of chaos. Some order, anyway. This is, interestingly, the same thing that art does. It is why, looking at one of Delo's Mutomati works, I can be moved to tears. By the grace, the balance, the redemption from chaos of the harsh, raw materials of life. Delo is gone. She left on the supply ship when I told her to. My keepers permitted a check of the ship's manifest to determine that. Delo is safe. I will probably die in the coming tele-attack, along with most of the humans both on the Scheherazade and on 149 Delta. The tele-fallow period for this area of space is coming to an end. For the last several months, there have been few attacks by tele ships, and those few badly executed. Months of frenetic creation of art, including all those etchings on the stone walls of the Citadel. Did I tell General Anson how brand new all those handmade etchings are? I can't remember. She didn't give me time to tell her much although it wouldn't have made any difference. She believes that war and art are totally separate activities, one important and one trivial, whose lifelines never converge. The general, too, will probably die in the coming attack. She may or may not have time to realize that I was right. But that doesn't really matter anymore, either. And strangely, I'm not at all afraid. I have no signs of going under, no breathing difficulties, no shaking, no panic. And only one real regret, that Delo and I did not get to gaze together at the Sistine Chapel on Terra, 
But no one gets everything. I have had a great deal. Delo, art, even some possible future use to humanity if Forrest does the right thing with my data. Many people never get so much. The ship's alarms begin to sound, clanging loud even in the medical bay. The telly are back, resuming their war. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the tale. If so, and if you find the time, please go to our website at lightspeedmagazine.com and leave a comment. Just click on Fiction, find this story, and then leave a comment there. Or if you'd like to help spread the word, go to iTunes, find the Lightspeed Magazine Story Podcast, and leave a review or rating there. And if you haven't already subscribed to Lightspeed Magazine, please take a moment to consider it and check out our many options at lightspeedmagazine.com slash subscribe. Also, a general reminder, available through audible.com is the audiobook story collection Lightspeed Year One which contains all of the podcasts from Lightspeed's first Hugo-nominated year. As you know, the stories are performed by a host of star narrators and produced by Stefan Rudnicki and Skyboat Road Company, Inc. That is all for now. Thanks for listening. Cheers from all of us at Lightspeed Magazine. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.